0: Bible worm, Bible worm, read the Bible with Bible worm.
1: Welcome to Bible worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia.
0: And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
1: Today we read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Jesus is in Jerusalem in the last week of his life when he pulls upon Isaiah's well-known image of Israel as a vineyard to offer another parable. One in which those sent on behalf of the landowner are rejected over and over again by the proverbial management. What does it mean in this context to say that the one who was rejected will be the cornerstone? Or does he mean foundation stone? And how does all of this tie into Jesus' famously clever instruction to pay to the emperor the things that are his, and to God the things that are God's? Oh. And we will also announce our summer series in this episode. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby, what's up?
0: (laughs) Hey, Amy. Not much. What's up with you?
1: I just came from a long rehearsal. And so I'm a little loopy and tired.
0: Which of your many endeavors are you rehearsing?
1: My, uh, I sing with a trio called the Mamalas and we have a concert on Saturday night. Beautiful. That we keep making bigger and bigger. We just added a new song to it. Hey, right on. And it's on Saturday night. And That'd there's some good. songs in languages that we have never sung in before. And that is challenging.
0: When you say you added a new song to it, does this mean you have a song that you've been working on and you said, hey, let's add that to the repertoire? Or is it a new song? It's not, not new.
1: It's a song we have sung before.
0: I gotcha. Okay.
1: That we thought That's would a little make bit a bad. nice transition. Yeah, yeah, no we didn't add the the song and the language we don't know uh, has been on the list for a long time it just continues to be hard. It's Hungarian. Hungarian's a very hard language.
0: You know, I have been in Hungary and I I didn't try to learn the language, but I can I can see that that is would be true.
1: I think I've heard that it's more like Mandarin. Oh, than interesting. Like Slavic languages or yeah. You know. Certainly romantic languages.
0: Anyway. I have been in China and tried to speak Mandarin. I was teaching English in China way back, and I tried to speak a little Mandarin. And that whole Mm -hmm. concept of a tonal language where, you know, what your voice does at the end or in the middle changes the whole meaning of everything was very difficult for me. It's It's not just mm -hmm. about inflection and, like, making your words sound more interesting. It's like you can say a whole other Whole See, a other whole
1: things. other kind of thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. I got laughed at mm-hmm. qu- kind of a lot. In a very generous way. It was generous laughter. Right.
1: Look what an amusing thing you <laughs> have just said. Yeah. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. I was teaching English, and so they were taking lots of risks trying to speak my language so to me. So that's nice
1: then that so you so I took spoke a their language back and... to them,
0: and they mm-hmm. laughed at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it sort of evened the, evened the tables a little bit. Yeah, yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so... Enough about all that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: look, instead of going down memory lane, let's look ahead. Let's look ahead to the summer, Bobby, because I'm tired of it being cold.
0: Yes. Oh, I have a, I have a, I can see the summer coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, going what, to should be we, amazing. what should we do in the Bible this summer?
0: This summer, we're actually doing something I'm pretty excited about that we have not done before. We're having a collaborative summer series with Spirit and Truth Publishing, And so, we're doing a joint series on creation and creation care. So, Spirit and Truth, as they do, is going to do their vacation Bible study curriculum and Sunday school curriculum. And we are going to do a series of biblical texts related to creation. The Spirit and Truth series is focusing on Genesis 1. We, being weird in the way that we are weird, (laughs) are adding some other things. So we're going to do a little Genesis, a little Job. We're going to do a psalm, a couple psalms, some Leviticus. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. And some Ezekiel.
1: I I really like. I love that we're doing this, and I love that we are diversifying the texts we're pulling for how the Bible wants to talk about the natural world, the created world. And I love that that does not mean that the poor children in vacation Bible school have to study Job and Leviticus. I'm so So glad for Spirit and Truth.
0: (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine us writing? You probably could do it because you think about such things. Me writing a vacation Bible school curriculum would be (laughs) such a train wreck. I always want to problematize everything. And so to have somebody who can say, here's the, here's what you need to think about from right. this text. Let's
1: start with this. Yeah. Let's start here.
0: Mm-hmm. And Leviticus yeah, no, 26 is not the place you would start I'm talking about <laughs> talking about creation care with uh, school-aged children.
1: But for us old people, it's great. Y'all it are going to love it. It's going to yes. be great.
0: So that series, I don't know exactly when it's going to get out in the world like the actual texts and stuff, we'll post them soon-ish, but those actual episodes will start appearing around the middle of May in the usual places. So everybody's got that to look forward to.
1: Yeah. I think that'll be good. I'm excited. Me too. Okay. We've talked about the past. We've talked about the future. (laughs) Yeah. Today- we're reading Mark chapter 12. We are. <laughs> it is. Verses 1 to 17, the narrative lectionary gives you the option of stopping after 12. But I why would, would we stop? stop? I know. Why would we ever stop? We're not <laughs> stopping. We're going to 17. Yeah. Last time we were in chapter 10, we are going to circle back to chapter 11.
0: We are.
1: For, there's an occasion that it's Palm for. Sunday. What is that called? Palm Sunday. Yeah. Yes. I was like the one where they're walking down the thing, a picture like a red carpet. Yeah. <laughs> For Maybe Red Carpet Sunday? Red
0: Carpet Sunday. Yeah, I like that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so we're, you know, we are gonna circle back to it, but I think we need a little bit from it yes. as context setting to get us from 10 to 12.
0: We sure do, Amy. And it's one of the sort of the awkward things about the way, you know, you've got you can't have Palm Sunday just in the middle of Lent. Although I was talking to the Bible Room Collaborative today, and there are a couple of communities that are actually just doing They're going to do Palm Sunday sort of in the middle of like Mm. third week of Lent or whatever. But if you're going to follow the liturgical calendar and have Palm Sunday the week before Easter, then you have to get out of chronological order, which is what the narrative lectionary does. So we skip chapter 11, but chapter 11 is, which also sounds like bankruptcy, which I never put together before. Mm. 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 Are you an office fan? I declare <laughs> bankruptcy. <laughs> Anywho. All right. So, uh, but all this whole gospel, we have been talking about Jesus in Galilee, sort of headed toward Jerusalem. And the last few weeks, especially, we've been talking about, he keeps getting closer and closer. And you feel this climax to this conflict, this coming. And Jesus has been talking about, when we get to Jerusalem, there's going to be suffering and death. Well, in chapter 11, Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem and comes into the city. And so things kind of change. Like now we're not off in Galilee. We're not on the way anymore. We are in the center of religious and political power. And it ta- it changes the kind of conversation that Jesus is having. So if you miss that, then this conversation that we're going to read in chapter 12 Seems a little, I don't know, it's, it's hard to figure out why Jesus is so urgent about what he's urgent about. But it's because mm. he's in the last week of his life and he's in Jerusalem. And we've been anticipating this is going to be controversial for a long mm. time. At the very end of chapter 11, we get, starting in verse 27, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's being challenged by the chief priests, the legal experts, and the elders. So it's the central figures of the establishment religion based in the temple in Jerusalem. And they're questioning him about his authority. And so when we read in chapter 12, that's who the audience is. That, that's who Jesus is talking to. Chief priests, legal experts, and elders. So the significant figures in this establishment religion. Mm. that's what I want to say about that. Would you want to say something else about that?
1: I think that is a very helpful orientation. And I really am glad you used the word urgent there because that came up for me some as I was, as I was reading chapter 12. So that's, that's helpful grounding for me. The only other thing we might want to note, well, actually tell me if you even think this is correct. Yes. He's speaking to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders but it references at some point in chapter 11 and then also in chapter 12 that they're afraid of the crowd. Yes. So I, is there a, are you picturing a wider audience there sort of witnessing these conversations?
0: I think that probably makes sense. Yeah. In Judaism in this period, there's a, and we'll see this toward the end of the text of today's text. There is a little bit of a different sense about what it means to be Jewish. If you are one of the elites and if you are one of the common folk, the crowds. Mm -hmm. And so they're walking this sort of delicate line about what are we going to say? That's going to upset who? And the, you know, the crowds, while they don't have any official power, they have lots of power in the sense that they can get riled up. We're at Passover they, there could be a revolt. There could be a lot of unrest. And so they're concerned about about that, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, as I said, the reading that we're going to do is chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. You think we're ready to start? I think so. Okay. So I am picking up and I'm reading from the NRSV. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them, this one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. Mm. Okay. I don't like this story, Bobby. I don't like this parable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you texted me this morning to say that you were going to play mournful songs on your ukulele while we recorded today.
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: Do you, mm-hmm. you want to say a little bit about, about that? Well,
1: I will. I will, but I think part of my struggle sort of starting out is I feel like I have the wrong feeling about it, Mm. and here it is. Here's the wrong feeling. I'm pretty frustrated with the owner of this land. Yeah. Like, he, he set all this stuff up and then went to another country and leased it. And then when it's, taught, you know, like he's coming to sort of collect his share of things and the slaves are just getting killed and beaten and he just keeps sending them. Yeah. I think that's not how I'm supposed to feel though.
0: (laughs) Well, Amy, you're, you are allowed to feel whatever it is that you feel. (laughs) (laughs) And, And far be it for me to correct anything. I mean, one of the things that you're seeing here is that this text is talking about an actual system of land ownership mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the 1st yes. century yes which was very much exploitative and the landowners were not viewed as the good guys yes. mostly and so we've got this system in the Roman Empire in the 1st century the technical terms is is latifundialization in oh, which wow yeah <laughs> like wealthy people would buy it's it's basically sharecropping they would buy farms in in galilee say and then they would be far off and having the people work the land then they would be taxing the produce of the land very heavily and so this text is playing with that it's interesting because the people that jesus is talking to here the chief priests and the elites probably were some of those landowners Mm -hmm. who were Mm -hmm. exploiting other people off in Galilee, which as you know, is where Jesus is from. And so pointing out the exploitative nature of the system to these landowners, like Jesus is up to something right there, Mm. but you're also right. Like, you know, when, when we sort of look through the allegory, we're going to, I think, end up with God as the landowner in this case, which complicates everything yeah. in the way that you were just saying.
1: Yeah. No, it, it's been helpful for me to try to remember that, you know, we've seen a couple times already places where as much as Jesus is pushing back against the economic system of the empire or the hierarchy of the empire, at a certain point, he uses it to, to be able to explain to people what he's saying. Yes, You know, it seems like a couple of chapters ago when he was trying to just approach things totally different, you know, without hierarchy, people, like, he lost people. Yeah. They couldn't follow that. So I'm trying to follow this sort of in that that line, like, this system would have made sense to the people he was listening to, uh, the people who were listening to him. Right. And I don't know that, do you think the listeners would have objected to the landowner continuing to send slaves? Or do you think they just would have been like those terrible tenants, like they're not doing what they're supposed to do.
0: It's interesting because I'm not even sure they would have, especially at the beginning when all they do is beat the first servant. I'm not even sure they would have been that upset about that. (laughs) Uh, I guess it depends on who we think of as the listener here. If we think of it as the chief Mm -hmm. priests and the scribes and the elders, they probably would be upset about that because they would be in the position of the ones sort of sending people to collect taxes and they would be frustrated about that. But if you imagine this as Mark's audience who were probably not wealthy Mm -hmm. landowners reading this parable or Jesus's disciples hearing this parable, they might've actually been on the side of the tenants for, for at least a little bit here to say, good on you for not paying your taxes to that absentee landlord. Now, when you start to get to the killing, I think they probably would have taken an right. objection. To right.
1: That. Or they might've been on the side of the the slaves who keep getting sent on this impossible mission and beaten and killed right. while yeah, yeah. the owner is off in yeah. his hot tub. and
0: <laughs> Yeah. One of the ironies that's here, and it's not quite obvious yet in the text, although you can kind of imagine where it's coming But one of the ironies in this text is, as it's going to turn out, the tenant farmers are the rulers, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Mm -hmm. And so those who in actual life are the ones who probably own these latifundia are in this parable, the ones who are having to work it. And so there is probably some sort of ironic enjoyment of that sort of detail of the switching of roles and the first becoming last and and that kind of thing.
1: Bobby, I have so many thoughts about this, but they all are sort of uh, pulling us out of the immediacy of the metaphor. So I'm trying to hold them back. (laughs) Hold back the water. I didn't do so well, did I? Yeah. I wasn't thinking that. I really am just thinking about holding back. But I do want to at least notice that in the way this story is told, there's not we don't really have a sense of much relationship between any of these people except utilitarian. It's a very utilitarian relationship. I think that's right?
0: right. Yeah. Amy, I'm so curious when you read that the beginning of that parable, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. What do you hear? Like is that resonating with you?
1: I mean, it reminds me of the the vineyard in Isaiah, yeah, where the vineyard does not—it's supposed to produce good grapes, but it produces crummy grapes. I don't think that's the word that's used, and is sort of held responsible for for producing bad grapes, which I always think also was a weird way to go in the parable, right? Because, you know, but that's but that's how it goes, and it's so it's interesting that this that doesn't seem to. I mean, I don't do you, that do you think that's in play here? Cuz that's not where it goes. It doesn't say there was anything wrong with the produce.
0: I mean, I think what you're putting your finger on is exactly the issue. So, I cannot imagine that a 1st century Jewish audience would have heard this parable and not heard Isaiah 5. Hmm. It's just so, the the resonance there is just so clear. And we talked about that text back in the fall. And so I think the narrative lectionary people were wanting us to make that, you know, wanting us to hear Mm -hmm. that as well. Make Mm -hmm. sure you've got this Isaiah five text because we're going to read the parable of the tenants. And so I think, I think we're supposed to be hearing that sort of, we know how that turns out that the landowner is God, that the vineyard is Israel and that it produces bad grapes, but you're right here. That's, it sort of takes a turn right there for two reasons. One is God goes away. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the other is because it doesn't seem to be the vineyard itself. That's coming into judgment here. Like it was in Isaiah, but the tenants who are responsible for the vineyard. And so I, I think what Jesus is doing is playing with a familiar parable in order Mm -hmm. to make it do something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you can't, I think you can't understand what the else is unless you hear the first the first version of the parable in your own mind. Mm. You look utterly unconvinced.
1: No, I mean, I think you, I think you, I agree with you that someone hearing the text in that context would have thought of Isaiah, and that maybe it's helpful to be sort of playing with imagery that's already been used. But I don't know if you need. I didn't place it a little strong. Different. You cannot understand. He does understand something it. different with it, it. Then
0: he does. Yeah. You can't fully I, understand.
1: It adds a layer of yeah. richness to the use of this metaphor. That's better. And uh, which is which is basically like something else is happening here. Like remember, remember that metaphor, but this is this is something else. Yeah. Should I finish reading our? We stopped halfway through <laughs> the parable. Should I finish reading the parable, or you want to add anything else about this first part?
0: Well, I think the one other thing that seems relevant to me at this point is this language of the servants that are being sent mm-hmm. is language that is used about prophets, and there's this there's a Deuteronomistic theology about prophets that shows up in Jeremiah and elsewhere that when God tries to send prophets to Israel, the elites of the people reject those prophets, not that Israel itself or the Jews themselves reject prophets, but the Kings of the time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so I think you hear in this telling the landowner sent a prophet and they beat him. The landowner sent a prophet and they killed him. I think, when you use that language of servant, you would not be, it's not a far step to hear in there, a Deuteronomistic, prophetic retelling of the story of the kings of Israel and the mm-hmm. ways in which they don't listen to the Torah and are persecuting those who try to bring Torah to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So to this point that we have read, we, I think what we've done is sort of retell that story a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does that make sense?
1: It totally makes sense. I, yes, it totally makes sense if we take it out of the immediacy of the parable,
0: <laughs> which is what you were trying yes. not to do. That I keep doing.
1: <laughs> no, but but you're right. I mean, it's it's frustrating to stay in the parable because then you just have like this sort of like obnoxious economic system <laughs> yeah. being played out. Yeah, but it's very different. It it is very different when you think about it as as uh, God sending prophets
0: for me it is i can't i can't i can't have i can't stay out of it you can't do it i got yeah
1: i got yeah you tried you tried here's
0: the way i'm here's the way i'm doing it as a scholar though (laughs) i'm saying that the original audience when they heard this they would have already been thinking all of this they would have been they would have not been able to hear it just as a story because the resonances Mm -hmm. are so strong that's my Mm -hmm. scholarly justification for my inability to focus on the parable as a parable i like it are you convinced I'm convinced. Okay.
1: I'm gonna play a sad song in the background. No, I. Li- <laughs> no, I like it.
0: Okay. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. We're excited to announce our 2024 summer series on biblical images of creation. This six-part series begins in May after Pentecost and includes texts from Genesis, Job, Psalms, Leviticus, and Ezekiel. We're especially excited to be collaborating with Spirit and Truth Publishing which has released a vacation Bible school and all-age Sunday school curriculum designed by experienced Christian educators called Learning Together, Created to Care, which can be used in parallel with the Bible Worm Podcast on Creation. For more information, visit spiritandtruthpublishing.com, patreon.com slash Bible Podcast, or look for our posts in the Narrative Lectionary Facebook group. We're looking forward to talking about creation with you this summer. In the meantime, let's get back to this week's podcast.
1: Okay, so parable part two picks up in verse six. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. you shocked by that ending. I was about
0: them that whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Tricky, Jesus. If I had been there, they would have known from the beginning because I would have given it away. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what you are doing, Jesus.
1: Okay, so up to this point, he has been sending slaves to whom, from what we could tell inside the language of the parable, he had no particular affection for these are his slaves. Right. And then it shifts to his beloved son.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: That's a really big shift.
0: Yes. And it makes you wonder about this landowner. Because you sort of expect by now you have seen what happens. And so it is a little bit naive. Yes. It is. They will respect my son, he thinks. Why? I mean, the best I can think is that Maybe this landowner just thinks sons are of a different nature. And so, of course, they're not going to harm my son, either because they know that I care about him or because they're afraid of what I might do to them if yeah. they killed my son. There is an interpretation of this parable that's kind of an interesting one that maybe the tenants think that when the sun shows up, it means that the landowner has died. Mm. So that part at the end, like, here's the Mm -hmm. heir, let's kill him. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're assuming the only reason that the son would have come to visit them was because landowner has died. He's the only one left. And so if they can, if they kill the son, then they could have the land for themselves. So if you read it that way, then maybe there's a misunderstanding between the landowner and the tenants.
1: I mean, I could envision a world in which the landowner trusts his son more maybe he thinks like yeah that his son will be able to communicate with more gravitas what has to happen if we imagine that there's sort of a class difference here if his son has been raised with wealth and power maybe he's just better able to yeah.
0: assert yeah
1: those things again it feels so awkward saying that because i know this is a parable but but I think that was the overarching thing that made me sad, Bobby, was that mm. I know that this is supposed to be a metaphor for God trying to reach religious leaders and trying to reach God's community on earth. And I think it's so meaningful in that way and having to read it through the lens of a, what I think is kind of a corrupted economic system to start with, really, right. I didn't like doing that. <laughs> right. But I recognize you have to meet people where they are.
0: You're talking about the corrupted economic system, which is is right. But I was trying to imagine how this actually would have worked. And you can bet if they had actually killed the slave of an actual landowner, he would have sent military personnel to take revenge on them. But he didn't. And so it is, it is working with this economic system, but from the very beginning, you have a landowner who is not acting in quite the way you expect a landowner to act. Mm. It is to the detriment of the landowner's servants Mm -hmm. and here of the landowner's son, but he's, he's more... I was going to say gracious, but I'm not sure that's exactly what I mean. He's less retributive than you than you would expect.
1: Yes. In a way that I think is hard for me to understand without knowing about what kind of relationship. Like if you only imagine a tenant-owner relationship between them, it's hard for me to understand that. Now, if we're ready to move past some of this language and say, no, we're talking about God and religious community leaders or however we want to talk about it then it makes more it makes more sense to me because there's a relationship and a blind hope maybe or some kind yeah. of trust that there's some other way for this to go
0: so if you move beyond the sort of wooden parable and think about it in those terms theological terms like you're starting to do yeah then that portrayal of god as the land owner starts to make a little more sense.
1: It makes a little more sense to me then because otherwise I don't know why why he just keeps trying something that didn't work before, which maybe I mean, maybe it is a, you know, a fool's errand to try to change humans. but if you imagine this this like covenanted relationship and like a really deep love and mutuality that we've been reading about all through the text, mm-hmm. you know up to this point then it makes it makes a little more sense that that the landowner slash God would would want to just say like, well, I just I'm just going to I'm going to try again. You're
0: going to do better this time. I know you. I know you can do it. Mm -hmm. You can do it. Yeah. I do think it's interesting when you try to, you know, when you read it as just a human landowner and you're like, what on earth is that guy doing? Like this is he's not exercising good judgment. And then you transpose that into the divine register and you still have that sense about what is now God, not exercising good judgment. Like they, they did it once. They did it again. You know, they're going to keep doing it. Why would you do that? It kind of, it opens up a, it's not exactly a critique, but a troubling of the nature of God that you wouldn't have gotten to. Yeah. Without that issue that you're wrestling with.
1: That's true. That's true. And it, it the way that this is told it it feels like there's an inevitability about it. Mm. That God is going to keep trying the same kind of thing and it's going to have the same outcome. Mhm. Okay, so he sends his son, that does not go well. <laughs> he is killed and thrown out of the vineyard. And then God Okay, God, he the owner <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sorry, now I'm
1: doing it too.
0: (laughs) I've led you down the path of darkness. You know,
1: yeah. Comes to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I do want to talk about that, but I want to read this other piece of scripture first. Yes. So this idea of rejecting the cornerstone, this is familiar from the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Do you remember anything about its context?
0: What I know is it's Psalm 118. Yeah, 22 and 23, which is a uh, passage that becomes well-known in the New Testament in these Christological terms. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know how it functioned in ancient Israel or how it functions in your Jewish community. Can you give me some background?
1: Um, I mean, what I, I will tell you is that I... I feel like Psalm one eighteen is an especially beloved psalm because it has so many, so many uh, lines in it that wind up being quoted. Usually in different contexts, though, it's not necessarily that that we read Psalm one eighteen altogether all the time. I have seen that line used a lot for really exactly, uh, exactly sort of what you would imagine from this. Parable that the people who have been pressed out of having any kind of influence or any kind of power to shape what is happening in the Jewish world or in their own communities—that ultimately they are going to be the the ones. Like the cornerstone is—I I don't know anything about structural engineering, but it, <laughs> it's it's like I think the stone within maybe an arch that, like, if you take it out, everything falls down. Does that
0: sound right? Are you
1: a structural engineer? You are an engineer. I am an engineer.
0: I'm a chemical engineer, which (laughs) I do not know about such things. Amy, it's interesting because this word that's used here in Greek, gonia, can mean a a keystone, which is what you're talking about.
1: Mm.
0: So the image there is of an arch. And then the last stone that goes in is the keystone, which has got a little wedge shape to it, which holds the whole arch up. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it can be translated as cornerstone, which was in the translation that we were reading, which is the like foundational stone. Like it's the first stone in a building. Mm, mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so depending on which way you read it, it has very different connotations. It's either here's the last piece we need to make sure the whole thing stands up Mm. or it's an image of starting over with a new cornerstone.
1: Okay. Can you, you want to try to like, Pull that out a little bit for us? Like, how do you think that would, what kinds of different visions do those put on the table for you?
0: I mean, I will tell you that I like the keystone idea, <laughs> even though ultimately I think that's probably not what Mark's Jesus is going for here. To me, the mm-hmm. keystone idea is we've got a structure that just needs the final piece to fall into place in order to mm-hmm. stand and be lovely. And so the stone that you thought was worthless is in fact, the stone that holds the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. What I think is happening here instead, at least in Mark's context, is that the temple is being destroyed. Even while Mark is writing his gospel, it's either about to be, or has just been destroyed. And so the sense is sort of a rebuilding of something new to take the place of something old. And this and the stone that has been rejected is the foundational piece of that new structure that's replacing the old one. So mm-hmm. it's a, an overturning of something old and bringing into being something new. I th- in, my, in my understanding of what Mark is up to, I think that's what he's probably saying, mm-hmm. although I personally am drawn to the other reading. What do you think about when you hear that?
1: That's really helpful. And it is, yeah, I mean, there <laughs> there are those moments where where we'd say, like, this is probably what the author meant. But <laughs> I like We can do something like else. This. We're not we beholden can do something unto else the author. It, you know, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bobby, we have talked a little bit about who we think the owner is in this, if we're moving out of the metaphor and moving out of the parable into a sort of more theological realm We've talked about the owner being God. We've talked about the tenants being religious leadership. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what are they, what is the vineyard? Like what is, what is it they're not giving to God? I mean, yeah. What is, what is it that they're holding back that God's trying to come collect? Or do you think I'm being a little too granular in this?
0: No, this is why I was talking about Isaiah five being the whole key to everything.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Great. <laughs>
0: Uh, which is anyway, because I think that the vineyard is still Israel or the people of God. I don't know which way we want to think about it at at this moment, Mm. but the vineyard is what the vineyard was. And in Isaiah five, the problem was that the vineyard produced sour grapes. And so it needed to be Mm. destroyed, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but here it's not the vineyard that needs to be destroyed it's the people who have been responsible for the vineyard who are the problem. And so there's a really interesting, I think separation here of the leaders of the temple structure, the -hmm. chief priests and so on, and the people in which the people here are not being held responsible. I think for anything, they're a perfectly lovely vineyard, but that these elites have tried to make it their own in a way that was illegitimate and so mm-hmm. they're the ones who need to be punished.
1: I love that, Bobby. And now I see why you said Isaiah was such an important <laughs> key to this because I was not thinking about the vineyard as Israel. I, I mean, I didn't really know what to think about the vineyard right. as, you know, as as our idea of, you know, God's kingdom on earth or the whole system God was trying to set up and, you know, with the structure of the Torah and, you know, creation or what, like, what is it? Of what are we the stewards? But I think you're right. If we see the vineyard as Israel, that's actually a really beautiful reframing of Isaiah. That it The is. problem is not Israel. The problem is the leaders are all over the place and are, and are forgetting to whom they are beholden.
0: Right. Exactly right. And so then it plays back into this idea that the elites that we are talking about likely were themselves landowners who were yeah. themselves exploiting actual tenant farmers. And yeah. so we get that sort of turning about of the roles. And so then it becomes a critique of them for exploiting economically the regular folks of of Israel, regular folks of Galilee, maybe, and not doing justice in exactly the, like it plays back into that Isaiah five text, but it's not the people who are not doing justice. It's now the leaders. And so the whole parable takes on this very different economic Mm -hmm. tenor about it.
1: I have one more question that I need to ask you about this section. And it is from verse twelve when when the leaders realized that he was telling this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I just and that happens also in in chapter eleven that we haven't read yet, but we will eventually read that the leaders' decisions are impacted by their fear of the crowds. Yes, I just I think that is so such an interesting sort of inversion of power or. Or sort of masking of power? Like where is the where is the power really if the leaders are afraid of the crowd? I don't know. How does that how does that sort of sit with you? How does that resonate for you that the leaders don't do what they seem to think is the right thing to do that we can disagree with? But I don't know. How do you is that a good thing? Like is is the crowd are the crowds keeping them honest, or is it crowds are making them cowardly?
0: I think the crowds, that's such a good question. In my reading, the crowds are keeping them honest
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the cr- they know that the crowds are resonating with what Jesus has said. Yeah. And presumably the crowds identify with the tenant farmers mm-hmm. who are in the the real tenant farmers who are being exploited. And so when, when this parable sort of comes in as a critique of that system, then Jesus has them on their side. And the the critique of the elders is clear. And I think they probably resonate with that critique of the elders. And Mm -hmm. so now they can't arrest Jesus because Jesus is a populist and and they really like him. Do you add something there? No, I think
1: think that's right, especially since we sort of know where this story is going. (laughs) Yeah. Bobby, we got to go on. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, our topic is going to shift a little bit here, or at least we're finished with this parable. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperors. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperors and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Bobby, I know who the Pharisees are, but I don't know who the Herodians are.
0: I think the Herodians are, the CEB has it as the supporters of Herod. Okay. And so Here we have some more politically aligned people who are now sort of entering into this fray as well.
1: So it tells us up front that they're trying to trap him.
0: Yeah. yeah. So
1: it's always nice as a reader to have that yes. information. Of course, Jesus isn't reading that verse. No. This might be obvious, but how are they trying to trap him? What do they think they're going to get out of him here?
0: That's exactly the right question. The Roman tax was a really complicated issue in the first century for a number of reasons. One of them was the, the tax was instituted when... Rome took direct control of the region of Judea and Galilee in in the year 6 CE, whereas before it had been ruled by sort of puppet kings, Herod the Great. Then Rome took over direct rule. They installed a procurator. They had the Tetrarchy, but they had a presence. And so this tax was used to pay for the Roman occupation of their own land. And so it's controversial in that way you're you're paying for your oppressor mm-hmm. to oppress you mm-hmm. so the reason that it's a trap is because if Jesus says, "I'm all about the taxes, let's go with that," then you know the Jewish people who don't like being occupied by the Romans are going to be upset with him. He's going to lose his support base yeah. because he seems to be supporting the Occupation. If Jesus says, no, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's a political rebel and he could be arrested by the Romans for sedition. And so, whichever way he goes, he's in trouble. And so they think they got him. He's either got to lose his supporters or he's got to get arrested. Mm -hmm. Ha ha, Jesus.
1: But Jesus is too smart for that.
0: Jesus is way too smart for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I just need to. This was another thing where I want to get my sad ukulele out. And mm. this is why. I I recognize this is just where the story it just gets harder and harder for me. Like it's not gonna get easier after this. <laughs> but but we have sort of reached a point in the relationship between the religious leaders and Jesus that I feel like there's no real way for them to have conversation like they're just
0: Mm. it's like
1: verbal sparring like everything is some kind of sparring and like and figuring out what's going to get me in trouble with the crowd or with the government or with the whatever like what can i say and what are the ramifications of it and i i feel a real loss in that like i don't I don't like using language in that way. And I recognize it is just a reality. Like we are, as as you have pointed out, we are now in Jerusalem. We are in the seat of power and politics are there. So yes. we can wish they weren't, but they are. Yes. But I wish they weren't.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally see that. Because there's a real lovely discourse that one could have about the implications of paying taxes to yeah. Caesar versus not paying taxes to Caesar and are there ways in which that is a reasonable right. and unreasonable thing to do and we are not allowed any of that nuance yeah. here no we're not and you have to be evasive or mm-hmm. get trapped mm-hmm. sounds a lot like modern day politics
1: yeah. it really does it really does that what is yes we're looking for we're looking this is something else something else has happened here I love also that last turn of phrase, give to the emperor the things Mm. that are the emperors and to God the things that are gods. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Do you think he's, what do you think he's thinking about the things that are gods? Like, what do you think he, I mean, like, okay, that's a very clever way to say pay your taxes, but, but I want nothing to do with that system sort of. But I'm thinking of it also in terms of these other texts that we've read where it really is like, you need to leave that system entirely. Almost like, why don't you go ahead and give all your money to Caesar? All right. of it. Give everything to Caesar because we actually don't want any of that. Right. But but that doesn't mean pledge your loyalty to Caesar. Right. That means pull yourself out of this like mud that you're stuck in, the yeah. mud of this economic system.
0: Now, there's so much going on here, Amy. I, I really love the way that you said that. And I do think I like to, I I prefer to read it with that kind of radical reorientation of
1: Mm.
0: give it all, all of that, give it back to Caesar and live your life sort of over here doing something different. I think it absolutely can be read that way and maybe should be read that way. Jesus has said it here in such a way that it could also be read and has been read as, yeah, you should pay your taxes. And so, this is part of the responding to the to the test. Is yes. it's not exactly clear what he said, and different right. people,
1: right? It can be read. It can be let the le- let the reader understand. Right, right. It can be understood in different ways.
0: There's a couple of things going on here that are pretty subtle that I real that I really think are interesting. One of them is that a denarius is a Roman coin. It was a, worth about a day's wages. Mm -hmm. But a denarius would have had, literally had an image of the emperor, which we see here. And it also would have had an inscription on it calling the emperor the divine son or the son of God. And so Mm -hmm. using a title that Jesus claims for himself, but that so the Caesar also claimed. The word that's used here for image is icon, which is also the word that's used in Genesis 1 for being in the image of God. And here it's talking about the image of the Caesar. And so one could read this along the lines of what you were saying as Mm -hmm. you need to decide in whose image you are created. If Mm. you're created in the image of God, then you belong to God. If you're created in the image of Caesar, then you belong to Caesar. And then everything else follows from that, which which is the originary image to which you belong. Mm. The other thing that Jesus does here that I think is so subtle and so awesome is he's like, I don't, I don't actually have a denarius. A lot of Jews in the mm-hmm. first century would not have carried a denarius because they actually thought carrying around the image of the Caesar was blasphemous, especially mm-hmm. this with this inscription on it. So Jesus says, I don't have one of those. Can you give me one? Then it's the Pharisees and the Herodians who actually do have one. So Jesus has exposed them as ultimately being loyal to Caesar and made a claim that he himself is not because he doesn't carry finances. And so he's sort of reversed, like he's kept his populism. He's demonstrated Mm -hmm. that the elites are not populists and he's evaded the question. It's just, it's genius. (laughs) And maybe what he has said is Caesar is nothing. You belong to God. But maybe that's not what he said. Like it's. Right. It's lovely.
1: It's so lovely. And I I love, especially when you were saying before this question of sort of to whom are you devoted? And I think probably at that time, part of the way you would show your devotion to anything is to give money to it. Yes. Like taxes or maybe in our modern time, we think like donations. Like that's part of how we express our devotion or our sort of being lower on the system is yes. by giving our money. But at the same time, if you if you gave all your money to it and pulled yourself out of that system, then you'd be out of that system.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Bobby, is there anything else you want to pull out from this section before we draw to a close?
0: No, I don't think so, Amy.
1: All right, my friend. There are a couple of different themes a person might pull out of a text like this. What is feeling most urgent to you?
0: Going back to the parable of the tenant farmers, the thing that I really love the place that we landed in thinking about God's compassion towards God's people. And we can think about what exactly we mean by that. And I i don't know what I mean by that and what you mean by that and what Mark means by that it might not be exactly the same. But the idea that the vineyard is precious and the vineyard is treasured and that God here is not trying to upend the vineyard but that God is upset by those who have been given responsibility for the vineyard. In this case, in the first part of this text, it's the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. In the second part of the text, we get the introduction of the Pharisees and then the government officials, the Herodians, who in a different way are also being questioned about whether they truly belong to the people of God or whether they have given themselves over to the Caesar. In all of that, it seems like the claim that is being made is that God has created a people for the doing of justice, going back to that Isaiah text, for the doing of justice and for living a life of community devoted to God and in God's abundance. And it has been misled and mismanaged by those who have loyalty to the wrong image, to the wrong emperor. Mm -hmm. And so that give to Caesar what is Caesar's means you can be in that system if you want to, but give to God what is God's which is exactly God's people, right? God's mm-hmm. God's vineyard. And so it calls all of us, I think, especially that the bit about give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's, or as I was saying it a minute ago, uh, in what image were you created? When I ask the question of myself that way, whose image are you living out? And am I being somebody who is living in the image of Caesar and actually not particularly devoted to the well-being of the people of God, or am I somebody who is living in God's image and tending to the community? Like That puts a really fine point on it, and I think that's a really important question for me to ask. That passage about the cornerstone Mm -hmm. from Psalm 118, as Jesus uses it here in Mark's gospel, is, of course, in the Christian community about Jesus. And so the foundation of everything is Jesus. If you are living according to Caesar, you are not, mm-hmm. you have, from the very first stone you have laid, mm-hmm. you are building the wrong building. And the critique here is of the temple as it was working in the first century, but the same critique can be leveled against what we call establishment religion here and now, and the question of whose interest it is serving. And so I just, I think that is such an important, like, I mean, it's a little bit trite at the end of the day, like Jesus is, Jesus is the cornerstone of everything. And and make, are you living that out or are you not? But part of the reason it sounds so trite is because it's so essential to what the gospel actually is. And this text to me brings all of that into conversation about mm-hmm. taxes and mm-hmm. land ownership, and mm-hmm. the way you run the religious establishment and the government. Brings right. All it's home. it's
1: it only sounds trite if you don't dig down into like right. okay, what does that actually look
0: like? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about you, Amy? When you read this text, where is it landing for you?
1: Well, okay. I saw Hamilton yesterday. So it's Hamilton. Like
0: for real? For real? Saw Hamilton. For re-
1: For real. For real. Yes. Yes. Hamilton came through Atlanta. Not just on
0: Disney plus or whatever, but not
1: just on Disney plus. And I had seen it on Disney plus before, but I had not seen it live and it's so much better live. And you know, you, in your introduction, you mentioned the word urgency or something being urgent. And I said, I've been thinking about urgency in this text and and here, okay, here's how Hamilton and urgency and this text all fit together. <laughs> <laughs> I am feeling really struck by the way that language is used in these texts, you know, and we talked about how it really has just, they're just sparring at this time. This is sort of like right. intellectual sparring. But the question came up for me when when Jesus realized that they were trying to get him to entrap himself and get arrested, as you started us out, this is his last week. He's in Jerusalem. I don't know if he knows the specific details of how things are supposed to go down, but was it an option on the table for Jesus just to speak freely and let whatever happened happen? Yes. And why didn't he do that? Mm. And I feel so trite comparing this to Hamilton, but it's just what's in my head. That I mean, part of what's happening in that musical is, or in the story of Hamilton, I guess, I don't know much about the guy myself, is exactly this tension of when do you just speak freely and not think about the consequences at all? Mm. And when do you keep in mind what is going on around you and what is going to happen if you say a particular thing? And when does the urgency of truth telling outweigh the urgency of time, mm-hmm. of like trying to have more time? Yeah. Because telling the truth will sometimes reduce your time. Yes. And in this moment, Jesus decides there's, there's a middle way for him. Like he figures out how to say something that does feel true and real to him and that also will not get everybody's you know panties up in a bow. And I just have that. I, the question in my mind is like, how how does he know when mm. when to when to extend his time and when to let what happens happen?
0: That's such an interesting question, Amy. I really love that. While you were talking, what I was thinking is there's this whole concept of oppressed communities speaking in hidden transcripts mm. as opposed to public transcripts. And basically the idea of a hidden transcript is you say what you mean but you say it in ways that only people who know what you mean know what you mean and other people in positions of power might miss it. Mm-hmm. Jesus I think is speaking truth that way here. Yeah. Although it turns out that the in the in the parable they realize like even the people in power realize what he was talking about. So it's not exactly that he's not saying what needs to be said, but he is, you're exactly right. He is saying it in ways that are not just blunt and overt. They are, let those who have ears to hear, listen.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I was trying to think what's going to change. I guess we can keep an eye on that the next few weeks as we look at like when Jesus eventually does run afoul of the Romans for real, like what has changed for him? I think that's an interesting question.
1: Yeah. It's just so, I mean, he's such an urgent guy throughout the book of Mark. It's just really interesting to see how does he, how does he navigate that? And yeah, having a few more days is going to give him like, he can do some more things. Yeah. He can do some more things towards his mission. Like, I don't mean to put it out as though I think Jesus should have just, you know, said something and gotten himself incriminated and gotten arrested earlier. I don't. I just think it's I just I think that tension, hopefully much less dramatically, but is is real in all of our lives in some mm-hmm. way.
0: One of the things he's done here is expose the hypocrisy of the power structures in public ways, mm-hmm. which is also something that needs to be done from time to time.
1: Bobby, next week, we continue just a little bit further down in this chapter. We'll pick up again in verse twenty eight. And we are reading a section that the narrative lectionary calls the great commandment.
0: Yes. I wonder what it will be. I don't know, but it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do know. And it is and it is great.
1: <laughs> well, Bobby, thank you for getting me through this text. It feels a little bit less harrowing to me now. And yeah, it well, is good. all because of you. Your insistence on Isaiah.
0: Yes. I did miss the ukulele though, but maybe maybe another time.
1: Another time, another time, yeah. All right, my friend, I will see you next time.
0: All right, Amy, see you then. Bye.
1: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash podcast for details.
0: BibleWorm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Art Wright, Brian with a Y, Kevin Jones, Brian Withanai, Laura Soder, Emily Wilmarth, Katie Strennek Singer, Blake Croft, Alex Zuber, and Catherine Rinkin.
1: Next week we pick up a little later in this chapter with Mark, chapter twelve, verses twenty-eight through forty-four. Until then, keep on digging.